You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Insert clip of Richard Nixon being Richard Nixon. Dylan, can we get your best Richard Nixon impression for just so we can simulate the listener experience? Uh, no. <laughs> Damn it. I know what I would do. It would be like one of those intense I'm not a crook things. It's bad. <laughs> no one should hear it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and here with me today in the studio are Weeds co-host Dara Lind. Hello. And Robinson Meyer, staff writer at The Atlantic. Hello. I'm really happy to be here. Rob covers climate and energy at The Atlantic, and he is here to talk to us about energy policy and energy security as it relates to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So just to give some background, in the weeks and days following Putin's invasion, we've seen the West respond with sort of surprising unity to try to isolate Russia. There have been a lot of economic sanctions. Uh, there were sanctions toward the central bank. A lot of Russian banks were limited in how they could use SWIFT, which is a messaging system for bank transfers. There have been bans on aviation and shipping connected to Russia. But Europe continues to be heavily dependent on fossil fuels from Russia, which complicates the picture. And gas prices are skyrocketing basically everywhere. They were going up before this situation, and they're, they're going up by more now. So all of this is naturally raising questions about the future of energy policy, both here in the U.S. and in Europe. But before we dive into what's happening now and how energy policy in the United States could respond, both in the short and long term, it's worth taking a step back to just understand how our current strategy came to be. So, the year, 1973. The month, October. An escalation in the decades-long Arab-Israeli conflict led to an oil embargo imposed on the United States. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. They will reduce oil production by 5% a month until the Israelis withdraw from occupied territories. Initially, leaders in Washington thought this embargo would hurt the oil producers who had imposed it, but that turned out to be wildly wrong, and an international energy crisis was born. But the president said that the energy crisis is real. He said the nation has a daily shortfall of 2.7 million barrels. And he said the oil shortage may become more severe and more dangerous. And out of that crisis came the strategy that has directed energy policy in the U.S. for the decades since. What I have called Project Independence 1980. It's a series of plans and goals set to ensure that by the end of this decade, Americans will not have to rely on any source of energy beyond our own. As far as energy is concerned, this means we will hold our fate and our future in our hands alone. So, energy independence. It has been the mission since the 70s. Both Republicans and Democrats wanted to achieve it. And Rob, we kind of did achieve it 
So where are we with energy independence right now? Yeah, exactly. So the initial Nixon plan was to have oil or really slash foreign oil by 1980. Didn't achieve that. And then suddenly in 2018, the U.S. achieved something like energy independence on paper. Um, we became the largest oil exporter and largest oil producer, period. And we became the largest natural gas producer. And in fact, had been the largest natural gas producer since 2011. So suddenly we went from this goal that as recently as like the 2000s had been basically a catchphrase and not something anyone expected for us. There was even not much attempt to develop like a serious policy around it. Right. Like it was the goal of policy, but it was so fanciful that there was not like a thought about how are we actually going to do this. This was just like the Emerald City all the way out there. Would it be fair to describe it as like the equivalent of, of like the U.S. saying it should be carbon neutral? Uh Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of like just that kind of, yeah, sure. Nice to have. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be like the U.S. deciding like we're going to make all iPhones here. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. okay, yeah, I guess we could do that, but we would like that's so far and distant, and it's not even in something like in our wheelhouse right now. Like, how would we ever get there? The wrinkle is like, of course, we only achieved energy independence on paper, and because there was no serious attempt to develop what would an actual fully independent U.S. energy system look like, severed from the world, which also people don't even really want. Like, we produce more oil than we than we consume, but actually we're not really independent at all. And so even though we've kind of achieved this like notional energy independence on paper where we sell oil to the world, it's great, whatever, we're not self-sufficient in terms of our energy needs and we rely on imports. We sell a lot of oil. It's all still priced on the international market. And there's no U.S. capacity to regulate or change or affect the marginal cost of oil in the same way that there is in the OPEC countries. And so we wound up kind of becoming market dependent, like instead of thinking we were going to be energy independent, we've become like newly dependent in three different ways, right? Like oil companies are dependent on the market to set the price of oil. They can't really exert any decisive action over the international oil price. Policymakers have this like U.S. productive engine, but have no way to turn it on or off in a crisis. And consumers are just still at the mercy of whatever the international oil price is. And so we make a lot of oil, but it's just kind of wound up complicating the politics further and providing us with very little security right now in a geopolitical crisis, which was the whole point from the beginning. It was the, the whole point of energy independence was we're meant to make the U.S. kind of secure against foreign crisis and, and geopolitical crisis. And of course, we're not at all. I guess like intuitively, if, if I said to someone, the U.S. is energy independent, I think what they might think I mean by that is we produce all this energy domestically, and then we use it, and then we have leftovers, and we export those. Uh, but we're still importing a lot of oil. Um, like, what's what's the process there? We import, I think, 9 million barrels a day, or at least we did in December 2021. And a lot of that goes into refining. So right now, the U.S. has, like, the largest complex of refineries in the world along the Gulf Coast. And those are actually very technologically advanced. And they're important to how the U.S. gets its fuel. They're also important to the, how the world gets its energy. So in addition to refining fuels for the United States, if you want to look at the Russian example, for instance. So in December, the U.S. imported 400,000 barrels of Russian oil. And more than half of those were this thing that the EIA, the Energy and Information Administration, calls 
unfinished fuel oils and the industry calls Russian sludge. And (laughs) (laughs) they are very heavy. They're very like uh, oil is on a range. It can be heavy to light. The heavier fuels tend to require the most processing. Um, So there's crude oil and then this is like X-rated oil. Exactly. This is like, this is exactly, this is like really gunky. It's like coffee grounds in there, you know? Um, And... The U.S. takes that, and because we have these very technologically advanced refineries, we mix that with a lot of other fuels, a lot of shale oil, which is very light and easy to process. You kind of create this financially optimal mix of, like, cheap X-rated sludgy oil and then light, agile, easy-to-process American oil and Saudi oil, oil from oil that's, you know, more expensive. And you put those two kind of inputs into the refinery and you get out a cheaper mix of fuel products like gasoline and jet fuel and diesel than you would if you just use the kind of easy to refine products alone. And so the U.S. like refinery system and U.S. oil companies are all connected to this international market for oil. We're importing, you know, unfinished products. We're exporting them as petroleum products. It's just like the kind of U.S. oil industry is actually way too important to the global oil industry as exists right now to fully sever or even be energy independent. It would require like a full rerouting of the industry because so much of what we make here actually goes elsewhere. My question here, Rob, is if energy independence has been more of a slogan than like a policy strategy and there isn't a clear definition and no one has really thought about, you know, what it would look like to go from balance sheet independence, which is, you know, the, the like on paper thing you're describing, to an actually severable system. Did anyone claim victory in 2018 when we got <laughs> to the balance sheet thing? Like, does it make sense to talk about us as energy independent at all? Does energy security, it, does that make more sense as a way to think about the issue? I would say energy security is definitely the the more profitable useful frame to kind of approach (laughs) these questions, in part because there are, as you said, like other energy consumers reliant on the U.S. And even if you wanted to switch the U.S. energy system and oil and gas system to autarky, like we'd still be connected to Canada, (laughs) (laughs) which is like a very important oil producer. That's very important to their economy. They would not want to lose us. So one thing that had happened is by the time we actually did become energy independent on paper, or at least by the time, let's say, our oil exports exceeded our oil imports and our oil production exceeded our oil consumption, President Trump had already modulated the goal to energy dominance. With these incredible resources, my administration will seek not only the American energy independence that we've been looking for so long, but American energy dominance, and we're going to be an exporter. Exporter. Which was his (laughs) way of talking about energy independence. So there was not like an administration to declare (laughs) victory. There's also a very funny thing that happens here, which is the industry loved the Trump administration for various reasons, aesthetic reasons, for long-term political... Like the CEO of Exxon was his secretary of state. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely, like we... Yeah, we did that, didn't we? Yes, yes, we did that. Um... At the same time, the industry was losing a ton of money because it was drilling so much oil domestically that, first of all, it was really screwing with the international oil price and depressing it kind of to the frustration of the Saudis and the other members of OPEC uh, and Russia. And it was also producing so much oil so cheaply domestically that none of the companies were profitable or they were very barely profitable. And so... 
it was a funny moment in the late 20 teens because on the one hand we had very bountiful cheap fuel so bountiful and so cheap in fact that i think basically like fossil fuel energy security kind of fell off the political agenda or it became something that only Republicans would talk about when they wanted to basically subsidize import terminals abroad so the U.S. could export more fossil fuels. They were losing, <laughs> they, they were basically ruining their relationship with Wall Street and Wall Street was really souring on the idea of domestic production because of how much money the industry was burning through. And so you have this funny moment where like, during Republican presidents and during Trump specifically, the industry is very happy and is doing very poorly. And then <laughs> now the industry is actually making money hand over if it's, it's like as profitable as it's been in a decade. And nobody is happy with it. And they're very unhappy. The industry itself is very unhappy with the Democratic administration. So before we move into Biden, like, why did they do that? Were, did they just like make an honest mistake about what high production would mean for their profits? Is it sort of a we have a long time horizon and we can afford to do sort of exploratory drilling in hopes that it will be profitable 10 or 15 years from now? It's actually a really great question. And some of the accounts of it are quite personality driven. So, in fact, it seems like there were particular leaders in charge of certain energy companies that really pushed to drill as much as they could. So I'm reading a great book now. I would recommend it. It's called. It's by Russell Gold, a former Wall Street Journal energy writer. Uh, it's called The Boom. It's about the fracking boom. And it ends in 2015, which is kind of fascinating because he repeatedly says, you know, some people think the U.S. could become the largest producer of oil, but that's really far off. But one of his explanations is basically there were a couple oil companies at the center of the initial boom. Chesapeake Energy was a big one. It was based in Oklahoma. And Chesapeake had made a number of really bad bets going into the mid-2000s. Also, the head of Chesapeake was very convinced, as many people in the energy world were, that natural gas and oil prices were about to spike a lot, and especially natural gas prices were about to spike a lot. And so he was basically trying to get out of this bad debt he had put the company in and also banking on huge price increases for natural gas that were, he thought were coming down the line in the late 2000s. And this drove him to buy up like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres and drill them all. He basically hired an army of people to go out and like buy land and mineral rights from individuals in Texas and Oklahoma. And it is very much like someone comes to your house and they sit down and they write you a check kind of business. Like it takes a lot of people and he hired those people and he kicked off this oil boom. And at that point, because of how much Chesapeake was drilling, the other oil companies in the kind of shale patch that were experimenting with fracking um, had to follow suit because they had to kind of keep up with the production numbers that he was pushing the whole industry toward. And so it's this interesting thing where part of what drove the industry was an anticipation that was pretty widespread in the 2000s that the U.S. was about to run out of natural gas and oil and that therefore we should, like needed to go find out, find as many domestic resources as possible. But it was also just like this very kind of contingent thing where Chesapeake turned out to be a very important company in this and it exploded partially driven by like capital dynamics where it had to grow a certain amount, it had to get out of a certain amount of debt and that caused it to expand fracking operations really quickly. Because I think one thing is that what we call fracking, I mean, what is now fracking, what now looks like the fracking revolution where the U.S. became this massive oil and natural gas producer, all the technology was there by the mid-2000s, but it wasn't clear it was going to produce this bonanza. It could have produced something more 
slower and more sustainable. And in fact, there were people in the industry pushing for that. But basically, once Chesapeake and a couple other companies started really expanding super quickly and trying to drill as much as they could, then the rest of the industry had to follow because if you lose land rights, I mean, if you lose, if you don't hit the same targets as your your competitors, then you're out. I mean, we're, yeah, we're not OPEC. We can't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's a huge part of this too, is that like in the oil and gas industry, people were very eager to find domestic sources of energy, but there's no, <laughs> there's no dial in the president's office, right? That lets him set oil prices. But like more seriously, there's no dial that like lets the U.S., really modulate the speed of production. You could kind of do it with how the U.S. leases public land for exploration, but that doesn't... Whereas MBS in Saudi Arabia does very much have a dial. That yeah, it's can... like Saudi Arabia and the UAE really do have dials, and it's both because of their technology and also because of their, like, geological reserves are just allotted to them in a certain way that lets them turn up and turn down production in, in less than six months. So basically, the U.S. did this huge expansion of energy, and there was no, like, regulator saying, hey, slow down, slow down, we really got to use these natural resources, we got to conserve them, we got to use them in a smarter way. It was just like, nope, companies want to do it, there's no policy mechanism to stop them. Just to follow this through kind of to its natural conclusion, you know, when we've been talking about the, like, energy policy conversation and certainly the inflation conversation— you know, one of the big ongoing questions is how much of this is just like, you know, corporations do have to a certain extent the ability to turn a dial and set prices. <laughs> like, yes. the, Biden may not, but like, in theory, you know, you can determine how much you are selling your oil for or certainly how much you're selling gasoline for, you know, the the ultimate products. So how much is this, you know, you, you, said, you mentioned earlier that the companies are raking in money, but nobody's happy. Like, would people be happier if they decided to rake in less money? I think it depends on who the people are. And cool, I think cool. that, that's such a that's such an important question about the oil industry. And it, it's so funny because this was like a question I was very curious in before Russia invaded Ukraine, completely uh, restructuring the global oil industry once again. But as you said, there's a huge question right now, which is how much price and control do companies have? And are prices rising? Like, has inflation returned in part because companies have more price and control? Because I think the way Jason Furman at Harvard put it is like, if you believe greed is responsible for faster price spirals and faster price increases, what has changed in the economy since 2019 to allow companies to be greedier? Um, it's, a, it's a hard question. But in the oil industry, the answer is actually a lot. <laughs> and it's very clear how you can – in the oil industry specifically, there's actually a very clear story we can tell about how companies could exert greed much more effectively and set the price level much more aggressively than they used to be able to do before. Tell me the story. Yeah, exactly. So before the pandemic, basically, you had the oil – you had domestic oil companies producing as much as they could. And you had OPEC plus, which is all the OPEC countries plus Russia, able to exert some price control. And the OPEC countries were quite unhappy with the U.S. because the fact that you, these American companies were pumping as much oil as they could. I mean, the U.S. fracking boom is the fastest year-over-year -year increase in oil supply in history at any time, period. And this really messed up the plans of <laughs> OPEC and Russia and other state oil producers. And it really annoyed them. And so going into the pandemic, basically, there was something approaching globally a free market for oil. 
it was not a sustainable situation because all the U.S. fracking companies were producing oil to loss. But kind of even OPEC was just like, okay, well, we're just pumping. Like, oil prices were quite low, and no one ha- was able to muster real pricing power. In the pandemic, oil uh, demand, of course, crashed. Then there was a price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia where they both tried to pump as much as they could, which doesn't really matter to the story except to say that briefly the world was just flooded in oil that it couldn't use. And U.S. and European oil inventories, like the amount of oil we have in storage, got really, really high. Coming out of the pandemic, these fracking companies, because they all nearly died during the pandemic and and fell back on Wall Street and public assistance to survive – they are now trying to be very profitable and they don't want to increase their production again because basically for the third time in a decade, the companies keep doing this thing where they produce a ton of oil. They produce so much oil, the global oil, like oil prices rise internationally. The frackers produce a lot of oil. They produce so much oil that oil prices crash, at which point they now have all this like unprofitable (laughs) drilling that they have to finish out. This had happened after the pandemic for three times in a decade. There was a huge wave of mergers and consolidation in the industry. It became much smaller. So while fracking used to be an industry with hundreds of firms, now it's several dozen. And they all are on a much shorter leash by Wall Street. Um, So much so that the head of Pioneer, the largest shale company, said basically, we're not going to pump at $80 a barrel. We're not going to pump at $90 a barrel. We're not going to pump at $100 a barrel. I've talked to all the other heads of the oil companies, and they all say Wall Street's going to punish them if they pump more. So the, the frackers in the U.S. aren't going to pump more. And that allows OPEC to exert much more control over prices internationally. And in fact, what OPEC's done is really increase oil supply very slowly since July of last year. And so even as the world has kind of recovered and come out of the pandemic and is using more oil now than it did before the pandemic, OPEC hasn't opened the taps in the same way that they did before the pandemic. And so between kind of changes to the U.S. industry and OPEC regaining its pricing power, there's just much more ability for for companies to set a price level in the global oil industry than there was before the pandemic. We're going to take a quick break, uh, but when we come back, we're going to talk about some things that that might be done to sort of address the current spike in, in oil and also how this sort of fits into climate goals for people. So stay with us. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. All right, we're back. So Wall Street has burned all these fracking companies. They don't want to, to drill any more than they have to. So first, OPEC has all this pricing authority. And now uh, for external reasons, the U.S. has has turned off the tap of a major oil supplier, which 
spikes prices because even though we're energy independent, we're in a global market. Yeah. So what, if anything, can Biden or Biden in conjunction with Congress do about this? Can they like take the Defense Production Act and like <laughs> make these frackers frack more? Um, they, they actually could. So, I mean, one thing that the Defense Production Act is like super great for is not even using it to make finished products, but using it to fix bottlenecks for production that we really care about. And one thing that you've started to see in the energy press is the frackers do want to frack more at this point. Prices have gotten high enough. They're ready. Oil and gas industry, for reasons that have to do with the fact that, you know, they produce a product that goes up into the atmosphere and makes global warming, and that's very bad, um, can be quite aggrieved. But they also do have the, a real, like, patriotic sensibility. And I think there is a sense now they do want to pump more. And, in fact, you've seen some of the CEOs say – that they're going to go to Wall Street and get permission. <laughs> but what you also see them say is that they're really constrained on the input side. So they need um, high-quality sand to actually blast the shale apart two miles underground, and they need good steel pipe. And both of those things are really hard to get their hands on right now. And so one thing that you could see, I think one of the few policies that Biden could do that would be really helpful would be to use the DPA to provide those inputs to the frackers at fair prices and to kind of secure those inputs wherever they are, provide them, and that way the frackers would be able to produce more wells. That being said, there are some there are some bank shop plans, including one I wrote about for The Atlantic that we can talk about. But I'd say broadly the answer to the question is like there's not a ton that Biden can do. And in fact, everyone is really stuck here. And I think that's the most, to some degree, like the most important aspect of the politics right now is like the White House even if it did exactly what the oil industry wanted, which it would never do because that would destroy its coalition, still wouldn't really be able to open the taps. The oil industry, even if it pumped a lot, it's a global oil market. Russia made up a huge share of that market, 12 million barrels a day of a 100 million barrel a day market. The U.S. oil industry just can't provide that quantity that fast enough. It can't bring prices down. And so everyone is just stuck like with this bad situation, but no clear way out of it. So if the levers that are available aren't going to be enough to actually solve the political problem, which is to say they're not going to bring gas prices down to the point where like average Americans won't be noticing that gas prices are high, given that we are talking about this in the context of like a broader energy strategy <laughs> and, like, an administration that professes to take climate change seriously <laughs> yes. and want to reduce American dependence on fossil fuels. <laughs> like, is it even a good idea to use the DPA to give fracking companies good sand and steel pipe? Or is this kind of incentivizing both in the, like, bad capitalist, like, boom and bust behavior that we saw over the last decade and failing to take the opportunity to push Americans to diversify their own sources of energy consumption. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is the question of the hour, I think. And I think there are two questions baked in there. The first is like, well, oil prices being very high is bad for Biden at the moment, but is it ultimately good for kind of Biden's policy goals in that it encourages people to go buy EVs um, or at least it really slows down the rate at which they're buying gas cars? In the industry, they talk about something called demand destruction, which is basically if oil prices get high enough, then you destroy future demand. And one thing that you can see right now, actually, is the the market, insofar as these things are knowable, actually already believes there will be more demand destruction in, in oil consumption in the U.S. 
in 2025 and 2026 than it did even a few months ago. So it's kind of projections for oil price levels and oil demand are lower uh, a few years out than they were, you know, at the end of last year. But it is a kind of funny thing because you can get really far into these conversations that are quite wonky and like quite arcane and and turn on a lot of history and are still very important for the economy as it runs today without talking about climate change at all, which is like the notional reason that I think we would have talked about fossil fuel policy for any reason kind of up until a few months ago. I think it would be good here to like bring up one of the bank shop plans because I think it would be the Please kind of do. best. Please. Yeah, great. Look, last week on this podcast, Dylan told a mostly true story about Pepsi's Navy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Pepsi had a very big Navy. Yeah, well, they, yeah, as, as listeners will recall, they didn't trade the ruble on international markets. And so Pepsi had to be paid in uh, vodka. And sometimes you run out of vodka and you off for submarines. <laughs> <laughs> in the 90s, I feel this is the kind of thing I feel like maybe I read it on Dylan's Twitter once. So, but in the 90s, <laughs> basically, uh, the U.S ran these very successful bipartisan policies, Nun Luger, I believe, yeah. was the name, mm. oh, to, yeah. to deproliferate nuclear weapons, what do you call it, to, to get rid of nuclear yeah. weapons in Kazakhstan and, and Russia. And Ukraine. And Ukraine. <laughs> and the fuel from those nuclear weapons actually got reprocessed and went to the U.S. where it was consumed in U.S. nuclear power plants. And I believe... Through a lot of the late 90s, like 10% of U.S. electricity came from decommissioned Soviet nuclear weapons. Yeah. I did not know this. This is incredible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interpreting this as Ukraine gave up its nuclear deterrent, opened itself up to invasion to power my Furby. <laughs> yes, yes, that's Yahooligans ran on on the on, on Ukraine's w- nuclear umbrella. Yeah, exactly. Just direct that and Neopets. Yeah, um, yeah. Post nineties, we were but, talking bank shots. Yeah. So okay, so bank shot plans because so look, so okay, one plan here would be the think tank Employ America in a plan that I've written about and that they've circulated has this kind of bank shop plan to use existing administrative authority to stabilize oil prices. And it would basically use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is a large physical store of oil that the U.S. keeps in salt caverns around the Gulf Coast as its first tool. And it would say the U.S. should sell, should conduct an exchange where it sells oil from the SPR today and buys oil back from new domestic wells next year because basically you can't bring a fracking well on in less than six to eight months but that's exactly the right amount of time to kind of do this exchange with oil coming off fracking wells in a year and oil that's available and just sitting in the strategic petroleum reserve somewhere you know uh, miles beneath the texas surface right now that would kind of lower oil prices slightly and it would certainly if you did it correctly and required the oil to come from new wells, increase kind of midterm U.S. domestic production. The second tool is there's this uh, Treasury Department fund called the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which can be used to stabilize currency. The U.S. dollar moves pretty close to like how oil markets are doing affects how the U.S. dollar is doing. And so in order to make this an offer that oil companies couldn't refuse, basically, you just have the ESF offer more attractive financing than Wall Street could. And so you say, look, we're going to cut you a very 
like like a better loan than the market can give you to start a new well, and we're going to buy that production from you in a year. Or maybe we're going to sell, you know, and it, maybe we'll immediately sell it back in a year, but like we'll just buy that production from you. You can increase domestic production right now with right. certainty. Now, of course, we're talking about increasing domestic oil production, exactly the thing that we were all so worried about happening during the Trump administration. So there are kind of two climate backstops to that plan, let's call it. The first is that if you use this authority in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to put a ceiling on oil prices, you could also use it to put a floor on oil prices going forward. And that would be good because one thing we do know just like empirically is that when oil prices get really low, people feel more comfortable buying gas-guzzling cars. And it's in fact partially because oil prices were so low in the 20-teens that U.S. oil demand is now so high. I mean, there's just millions of barrels of oil a day go to powering the marginal difference of SUVs over what would have once been sedans or minivans, right? Um, because people bought SUVs because gas was cheap. It wasn't a big expense for them. So if you use the SPR to, like, in the future, put a floor on oil prices, that could be a really good climate policy going forward. It could also offer some stability to a domestic oil and gas industry that is pretty worried <laughs> about, you know, breaking the bank and, and over-drilling in the future. The second thing that, the second, let's say, like climate saving grace of this plan is that because the oil and gas industry in the U.S. now consists largely of short cycle production, which is fracking, and because fracking wells produce most of their oil and gas in the first year or two of their life, if companies went out tomorrow and fracked a bunch of oil, the vast majority of that oil and the vast majority of those wells would have been used up by 2025 or 2026. And so what that would really do is stabilize the oil market in this near to midterm period where the U.S. economy still needs a lot of oil and gas to just operate and where oil demand is very inelastic. If that was like married to a policy of like slowly, steadily increasing the price floor on oil to get people to switch to EVs, that would be awesome. And you could even see that come out of the plan long term. But of course, none of this exists right now. And that would probably require a democratic administration to implement. Yeah. So we've mostly been talking about how this affects the U.S., which makes sense. We all live here. But another sort of geopolitical aspect here is just the effect on Europe. Um, my sense is that they haven't been as profoundly affected by the fracking revolution as the U.S., though, except in as much as they're part of a global market for oil and have benefited that way. But they've also, Germany in particular, has moved pretty hard against uh, nuclear which increased demand for, for coal and natural gas. They seem to get most of their natural gas from Russia. How do we get to that point in Europe? And is, is Europe where people are kind of used to higher gas prices anyway than the U.S.? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, at, you know, the Europe situation is so different because liquid fuel prices are so much higher. There was an intentional policy to move Europeans to diesel, um, which <laughs> has had costs and benefits. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Um it's a much denser place, so there's more reliance on public transit, and the energy politics are, let's say, different. <laughs> um, they're different enough from country to country in Europe that it is actually worth kind of talking about them in that way because we often talk about Germany in regard to Russia, and Russia is a very important energy provider to Germany both because it provides liquid fuels and because it provides natural gas via pipelines. It provides natural gas via pipelines to Germany because Germany made an intentional decision in the 1960s that it would begin importing gas from what was then the Soviet Union, 
which was also occupying half of the country, <laughs> um, as a kind of like live and let live situation. Right. As a, as it was it's like detente. Yeah, like they call yeah. it Ostpolitik, you know, <laughs> and that German reliance on Russian gas was kind of the backbone of like the German Russian detente around economics that preceded up until, you know, two weeks ago <laughs> um, and would have proceeded with the construction of Nord Stream 2, the gas pipeline that would have gone through the Baltic coast to Germany. At the same time, Germany has a Green Party that is quite against nuclear power. And one of the ways it responded to the Fukushima disaster was that it announced a long-term strategy to decommission its nuclear plants. Now, it has also been moving off gas because Germany also has one of the most aggressive energy transition policies in the world. And so at this, I should say, like at the same time that Germany has moved, has decreased its nuclear use, it's also decreased its gas use. And gas in Germany at this point is really important for mostly like industrial use and heating, which makes it hard to replace. Okay, we're going to leave Germany there. Okay, so the next door is France, which has one of the best and cheapest and most efficient nuclear fleets in the world, and which also maybe thought about leaving nuclear a few years ago. Now Macron is making noises that he won't. Um, and in fact, they're going to build more nuclear. But I think it shows like even within Europe, there are country to country political differences over energy that don't seem to arise from anything other than like actually like ideology and almost energy identity politics, which are very strong. Well, and historical contingency. And historical contingency, which totally. It seems like as good a time as any to talk about our white paper, which is about a historical European, a, a particular European <laughs> case study yes. and the influence of one historical contingency policy choice. And, and allows us to get a little more explicitly into some of the climate impacts here, since we've, we've been alluding to that from time to time. But it's, uh, yeah, oil, oil has a serious carbon footprint, natural gases. <laughs> serious carbon footprint. Uh, we are, Oil, it's not all smiles. We are opposed to global warming on this podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Man. Uh, okay, so today's white paper is called Carbon Taxes and CO2 Emissions, Sweden as a Case Study. It's by uh, Julius or perhaps Julius Andersson. So Sweden had one of, if not the first, carbon tax in the world. And so this is an attempt using a method called a synthetic control where you construct a like fake Sweden based on sort of pure countries that are weighted to resemble Sweden's patterns in emissions and transportation before this policy was enacted. And at around the same time that it enacted a, a carbon tax, it also enacted a value-added tax, a kind of sales tax on transport fuel, on gas and air fuel. And this paper sort of unusually finds uh, pretty significant effects. Uh, the two policies combined reduced emissions from, from transport by nearly 11% is the headline finding. And the carbon tax uh, did the bulk of that. Uh, they were both effective, but people seem to respond more to how the carbon tax changed gas prices than to prices on gas specifically. So, yeah, Rob, part of why I want to do this with you is that I was kind of surprised reading this paper. It cites a bunch of other studies that found kind of null effects from carbon taxes on, on various types of emissions. That really surprised me. What, what do we know about that? <laughs> yeah, actually, I was, I was really glad to see this paper. I wasn't familiar with it because it has quite a remarkable headline finding. And as you said, and as it makes clear, the empirical work on carbon taxes has not been super cut and dry. There are clear theoretical reasons why they should work. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and a lot of the thinking about them has been pretty 
pretty grounded in theory. Um, but in terms of finding evidence that they do reduce CO2 emissions, and specifically from like transport fuels, which is, let's say it's the lowest hanging fruit of emissions reductions as an economic sector. And it's also the one that's the most dependent on fossil fuels in some ways. It's a real mixed bag. And in fact, it's like, not actually a mixed bag. It's like, a pretty empty bag. There's, <laughs> there, there's some good evidence that maybe you can see maybe a couple percentage point declines. But um, as the paper makes clear, it's very hard to do a counterfactual. CO2 consumption, especially of transport fuels, is really linked to just like GDP generally and just broader economic trends. And so it's hard to separate those from emissions pathways. Uh, and also people will go across borders to buy gas. I mean... <laughs> As a child of New Jersey, I can tell you that lots of Pennsylvanians used to drive across the border into New Jersey to buy gas. Also, they didn't have to pump it. And uh, that really confounds the fuel effect. So the fact that they found a 10% reduction is pretty, pretty striking. It's also interesting, though, I would just add, because this is one of the largest carbon taxes in the world on a per ton basis. Um, And it's been in place for... You know, for it, they're they're looking at essentially twenty five years of data here. Yeah, exactly, and especially in some ways, she really uh, he excuse me really focuses on the nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in some ways, an eleven percent reduction is even more striking during the nineties because there were just fewer fuel conserving options generally. I think the first Prius came out in the in the late 90s it might be mo- early, early 2000s 2000, i think right? yeah it was the, the honda insight the like little two-seater i remember being the first hybrid you could buy yeah and so it wasn't like you could sw- reduce your fuel consumption in the 90s by switching to a hybrid or something it, it, we're seeing kind of marked real declines for that decade uh, at the same time like it's a very large carbon tax it's only an 11 percent decline and so i don't want to be a carbon tax it is well, a- although it's, it's also like you were talking about the transport sector being like the place where it's kind of most important to do yeah. this. And like that's where like Sweden tailored its carbon tax to hit that sector first and foremost and like really mitigated the extent to which it was going to be a problem for other uses of, of fossil fuels. So, it you know, it's not like it's it's a huge carbon tax that in practice is only fully felt by the transport sector. Right. But yeah. I, I, too, have a lot of questions about the kind of, like, historical contingencies and all of that. But, like, I'm sorry. This fr- this paper uses the phrase synthetic Sweden <laughs> to describe its control. Oh, yeah. I, I, my favorite is together Denmark, Belgium, and New Zealand make up three-fourths of synthetic Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Rob, for I, having this I, queued up. I really encourage you to read as many synthetic control papers <laughs> as you can. It's really common in papers on gun control because, like, you're always comparing the effect of some policy in a state. And so I've read a lot about synthetic Connecticut <laughs> and how deadly it is. I do think that it's worth pointing out that the— paper authors, like, have an explanation for why they're, or paper author, sorry, has an explanation for why he's finding, like, such a big effect when there's typically been a fairly null effect. And that's that, like, in previous work, you've estimated the change in demand induced by a carbon tax by projecting, okay, if the price of gasoline changes now and people respond to those changes, and then we raise it because we have added a carbon tax to it and finds that, you know, if this study is legitimate, that it's actually like what we think of as the price elasticity is much, much, much lower than it actually is. The added burden of a carbon tax suddenly reduces demand to a much greater extent than a, a 
you know, secular hike in gas in gasoline prices would. I don't know that I fully understand why that would be the case. And I also like I, I think it's just very difficult to disaggregate the choices made by Sweden in like the early 1990s and going all in on a qu- climate tax with subsequent choices that Swedes and Sweden <laughs> might have made in the next decades that might have brought them to this point. But like, does that make sense to you guys as, you know, like it, from a climate economic standpoint that there's going to be a much bigger elasticity for the tax than for the secular price? I was sort of surprised by that and don't really know that I can make sense of it. That it, it seems my my prior is that people go to the pump and are are affected by the price they see. And it seems to make sense that this would be a big price. So just to put some numbers on it, uh, the current, uh, as of 2021 at least, uh, Swedish carbon tax was 1,200 kroner per ton of, of carbon emitted. And that's about $125. And my the rule of thumb I've always heard for gas prices is that about $100 per ton carbon tax raises the price of gas by a dollar a gallon or yeah. so. So That's this is too. Yeah, so this is like a buck 25. That's like a really big share of the per gallon price of of gas, but as Dar was saying, it's not just that, it's that that has more effect than if you would put a dollar 25 gas tax on it. And that I don't know how to explain. Did the paper find that or did it find that if the price went up by $1.25 that people would avoid? Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Uh, compared to like a natural increase in the yeah. price versus, yeah. My inference was just, wow, people really hate paying taxes <laughs> and will just avoid it. You know, maybe there's in, in people's like mental accounting because they know that such a large share of a purchase will go to the tax. There's kind of like maybe an like a mental X over <laughs> going to the pump more. They try to reduce more. But it's also hard to disaggregate from the fact that, like, it stayed in place and a society that's made the decision to care about climate change and pass a tax of this size will also <laughs> manifest at the individual level with lots of kind of choices away from from gasoline purchasing. So it's interesting to what we're seeing now because some people are looking at the gas price hikes that are going on right now and how much people hate them and are using that to argue against a carbon tax. And I think what the paper shows is, first of all, we would actually see potentially even less demand compared to the kind of demand destruction we're about to see from just these high oil prices. And second of all, that there is something deeply different about price volatility in the commodity itself, an engineered higher level of pricing for gas across the board. Well, and one thing they find is that it reduced overall volatility, that just because taxes were such a huge share of the overall price of gas, like percentage-wise, the price didn't change as much due to global supply fluctuations uh, as it would in the U.S., where like we have excise taxes, but they're something like 10%. Uh, if he quotes in 2019, like 10% of the, the cost, it's much less, I'm sure, now, um, now that the price of gas has doubled or more. But... Dara, you had a fun Sweden story. Well, I mean, I do. It has very little to do with, like, energy policy, though. I just wanted you know to— You we're here. It's, do it. It's only, it's only insofar as, yes, Sweden's politics getting more normal does seem to be a thing. Um, big, big, big shout-out to Oskar Sigvardsson, who is a Weeds listener, who was my tour guide through downtown Stockholm and told me wonderful stories about how, you know, the country has a, a couple of— 
assassination and assassination attempts of of leading political figures, after which they will do things like take the radical step of insist that the prime minister have security guards. Um, <laughs> like we're doing, you know, we're, we're talking about this as we're just walking through, you know, a, a very under-securitized downtown. But while I was there was the beginning of December when they had their first female prime minister for a few hours and then she resigned and then there was another vote later in that week to reinstate her because her coalition had fallen apart, uh, you know, in classic parliamentary style between her being sworn in and like the next step in the official thing was partly because her coalition had been a popular front effort to keep the far right party from being in the governing boat. And that meant that she had to hold together the far left and the center on budgetary issues. And so all it took was like defection of one of the parties in that big tent <laughs> to get, you know, the 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 question of like, oh, is the government going to come together? Of course, in the midst of all of this, there's also the fact that uh, one of the ministers that she appointed had to resign like the next day because once he got appointed, there was pretty clearly an oppo dump because it was like that morning, like, hey, he's got a Me Too problem, um, which raises a lot of questions about the vetting abilities of like, you know, whoever in wh- whoever in the relevant s- Swedish p- political party <laughs> is responsible for like checking out the resumes that you send to the prime minister, um, but also really does bespeak a certain like the difficulties of the popular front are not only do you have to hold everybody together on policy, but also if everybody knows where the bodies are buried because they have been fighting against you in the polls for decades, they're probably going to make sure that your faction doesn't get the plum spots in the cabinet. <laughs> yes, it is really hard to form a coalition in Europe right now when you need to uh, push out the party that was founded by neo-Nazis. Uh, I'm sure I will get emails saying the Sweden Democrats are not currently neo-Nazis. They just were founded in the 80s by neo-Nazis. <laughs> and it was a different time, the 1980s. <laughs> and it is purely coincidental that they, like other far-right European parties, have gained steam after the 2015 Syrian refugee crisis. A lot of things have happened at surprising and and not at all indicative times. Anything else on Sweden and carbon taxes? I feel like we might have an episode. No, I think we have the, an episode. Uh, the, well, the one thing I was going to say is that the fact that there's lower volatility in oil for this relatively high tax supports a claim that carbon tax advocates make, which is that you know, the whole idea of a carbon tax right is polluters pay. You know, you want to put the onus for the tax on polluters, and polluters then dispute <laughs> right. this and say we're going to pass the full tax along. It's going to be so easy. You don't even right. know how easy it is. <laughs> and what the paper shows is that if you get a carbon tax that's high enough – it gets high enough that as the price of the commodity goes down, like polluters will pay more and they'll absorb more of the tax burden basically to keep the volatility of gasoline prices to the consumer really low or at least lower than they would be otherwise. It's striking how much you hear these arguments for how little empirical support there is for them. So it was nice to see uh, them appear in this, in this paper in a clear evidentiary way. Theory being confirmed by evidence. We love to see it here on The Weeds. That is all for us today. Thanks so much to you, Darland, and especially Robinson Meyer for joining the panel today. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I am your host, Dylan Matthews. If you have not signed up for The Weeds newsletter, please go to vox.com slash weedsletter. That's vox.com slash weedsletter. We'll be back next Tuesday. 
The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org.